Radioactive plugs you into the community weeknights at 6. I'm Laura Jones, and your support means Radioactive can keep passing the mic to people and nonprofits making a difference, like the League of Women Voters of Utah. Helping legislators understand that investing in the community, investing in programs is investing in the state. It's investing in us all. Radiothon starts October 29th. Help us to keep plugging you into the community by making your donation online at krcl.org. Little Lovin' Lissy off the album Why You Runnin'. And eBay Hamilton wrapping up another afternoon drive just ahead of that. Check krcl.org to find our full playlist if you missed a song title there. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show plugging you into your community of grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Hey, Radiothon starts Friday. So thank you for your support of Radioactive and all the shows here on KRCL the last six months. We literally can't keep the lights on without you. So while we have ways to say thank you for your financial contributions with T-shirts, hoodies, and also gifts for good with Ray Swami and Tree Utah this time, I really just want to know that your heart is where your ears are. In fact, you can put some money down on the turntables right now at krcl.org. Hit that big orange donate button in the top right corner. Tonight on Radioactive, jazz from Russia by way of New York City and stopping at the Orem Public Library November 3rd, Svetlana will talk about her love of Western movies while growing up in Soviet Russia and how that fuels her music today. Allison Murgis, a hometown girl made good with Disney on Ice, has a song pick for us tonight as she as she skates into the Beehive State. However, we're going to get started with our ongoing series about gender and nature. Joining me now is Professor Kilo Zamora, a gender scholar at the University of Utah. And Kilo, why don't you set the stage for this project we're doing, crowdsourcing your next class? Yes, well, I'm glad to be back here. So Lara and I have been interviewing creative thinkers and scholars around the community on KRCL to get their ideas about how gender and nature intersect. And then we're taking those, gleaning those ideas and developing a course called Gender and Nature in Gender Studies. So who is our guest tonight? Well, I'm so excited to introduce the listeners uh, to, to Nikki Waitman, excuse me, our executive director of Hawkwatch International. And I'm excited to think about the ways in which raptors can inform gender and nature. Birds of prey, shall we say. Hi, Nikki. Yes. Hi, how are you guys doing? Fantastic. So I sent Nikki some questions. I'm glad you could be here with us today. I actually have a question. I, I know that you um, must have a favorite raptor. So I always feel like that question is like asking someone what, who their favorite child is, but um, my favorite raptor is more often than not the Northern Harrier. And that's because it's a little bit of a morph bird. It has features of both a hawk and an owl. Um, and it's so it's a really cool bird to watch hunt. Um, it's found like in wetland marshy areas, which are really critical habitat for lots of birds. And so it's a it's a real beauty. The Harrier, isn't that word mean like a cross-country runner or like a person who persists in attacking others? 
Yes, that okay. it does. So that's a it's a very appropriate word for a bird of prey. Okay. All right. Thanks. Well, in your organization all together to talk gender and nature, this is going to be interesting, Kilo. Yeah, I think so. I want the as we get into these questions, Nikki. I think the audience would love to know a little bit about your organization and one of your biggest aspirations as an organization moving forward. So they kind of have some context of who you all are. Sure. So Hawkwatch International is an international conservation research organization. And our goal is really to monitor and protect birds of prey. Um, and so we do that through long-term monitoring, research and education. And, um, you know, I think aspirationally, one of our biggest goals is to make science and conservation specifically accessible to everyone, which isn't always easy. And you have a gala coming up, right, on November 3rd? We do. It's our 35th anniversary. So we've been around watching birds and counting birds and studying birds of prey for 35 years. Um, and so we're doing a virtual gala on November 3rd, and we're, we're really excited. Let's make sure we put a link to that, Lara, in our, Absolutely, in our in notes show for notes. this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because maybe some of your listeners want to join and support this great organization. They do a lot That'd of great, great field trips, and you can go out and bird watch with them, watch these birds of prey. And I think you get a really firsthand glimpse at gender and nature up close and uh, vicious, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's it's true. They can be a little vicious, but they're also, like you said, they're just beautiful and spectacular and really powerful, which is incredibly fun to watch. Well, here's your first big question, then, Nikki. Let's jump right in. Okay. To it, uh, <laughs> how has your time in in field observation of birds of prey, raptors, made you rethink your identities, um, your sexuality, your race, your gender, your spirituality? Any of them? I think that's a, a really great question. I think one of the things that I love about birds of prey and as a, as a woman and a woman in science, which luckily is becoming more common, but it's still not the predominant uh, situation. Um, I love that female birds of prey are larger than males. Um, I think that's something that's really <laughs> kind of unique and spectacular. Um, I think, you know, anyone who works in the field and spends, spends time working in the field um, talks about their connection to nature um, in a really spiritual and personal way. I think it's impossible to spend time, especially in really undeveloped kind of wild places and not kind of figure out who you are and ask those really big questions about what you think about the world and your place in it um, and your spirituality um, in that regard. Um, and so I think for me, spending time in nature really kind of pushes my comfort level. Um, I think we're really accustomed to being in developed places with lots of light. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that I love doing at Hawkwatch is owl research. And so spending a lot of time in the dark and really finding your comfort in that space. Um, and I think the other thing that's really unique is one of the things we talk about a lot in gender and gender issues um, is 
power and who has power. And when you spend time in nature, it's really obvious who has the power and it's not you. <laughs> oh, how I'm, that's so interesting. I didn't know you were going to turn it that way. And I love it. I like this idea of spending time in the, in dark places and how, how it may create a potential vulnerability and also a different kind of awareness of self. And then the second part of that, as I'm really interested in about your thoughts on power and how all of a sudden when you're there in the wild spaces, you can feel maybe where you don't always possess it, that you may mm-hmm. possess in, in more urban developed spaces. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I've taken a lot of students um, into the dark to do research as well. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to do. I think as humans, we're, we're exposed less and less to dark spaces and what that means. Um, and so, you know, when you start out, everyone has their headlamps on, right? Because they're so uncomfortable. And then after about a half an hour, 45 minutes, like you'll notice headlamps start turning off and people getting really quiet and there's not a need to be connected to anything except what's right there. There's not like this desire to like get on your phone or turn on the light or have a conversation with the person next to you. You find this like really powerful need to just be still and quiet, which is not something that humans are innately good at anymore, I don't think. Um, And I think nature really gives us the space to explore that side of ourselves. Beautiful. Um, I've got something for you. And that's how you said earlier that you realize it's the female birds that are bigger. Another thing I've noticed among birds is that male birds may have all the color, so to speak. I'm thinking of peacocks in particular. Mm -hmm. The males have these glorious feathers and the the female birds um, don't. So this nature of... Per, uh, how nature performs gender is interesting too. It is. And I think, you know, in, in birds, especially and non-raptor species, which have that really dynamic sexual dimorphism by color where the males are so beautiful that you can't almost stop looking at them. Right. If you see a male cardinal, for example, it's so bright and brilliant. Like you just are so drawn to it. Um, but the thing that's really special about that is, that comes with a lot of risk that the female birds aren't having to take on as much, which in like, as a woman, again, like that's a very different role for us, right? Like we're taught from like the time that we're young girls, how to stay safe, right? We're very risk averse naturally (laughs) um, because there's a lot of potential danger in being a woman. And Being a woman in nature is also not a really comfortable place to be, but for female birds being more sort of bland for lack of a better word, or more earth toned colors really affords them a much safer lifestyle. Wow. And I'm thinking about camouflage, right? Nikki? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it's interesting too, when I'm thinking about this class about gender and nature, I'm hearing the adjectives that, that are being used. Like when we think of color on a bird, we might use the word beautiful. Mm-hmm. And when we deconstruct the word beautiful for a moment in human terms, uh, we think about what that means about performing beauty. And one, mm-hmm. and as you're talking about staying safe as a young girl, I would, I would even suggest that 
it's not more natural. I would say that it's more structural that staying safe as a young girl is because of all of the potential violence that could be out there towards uh, young girls and women. So I'm wondering about this juxtaposition though, that when we think about beauty and we attribute more color to that, do you think there's um, something gendered in that? And as you look at, look at animals, look at birds, are you gendering them because of the way you describe them um, in the field? Yeah, I said the way it's performed in nature. They don't perform it. It just is. <laughs> it's, it's true. And I think it takes a while. You know, when I go out with people who are not um, bird watchers in their own lives, right? If this is like their first time out, um, they often attribute the really bird to a female because we attribute beauty. And they do think, yeah, I think what you said is right. I feel like beauty um, is, is a very like social construct in, in human form. And obviously we could, we could spend an entire hour just talking about how that's changed over the generations and generations and generations of humans on earth. Um, but I think in nature, beauty doesn't have a gender. And I think that's a really lovely sentiment. And I think it's something we could certainly learn from nature that we haven't really absorbed yet as humans. <laughs> Do you find that as people go out with Hawkwatch into the field, they take what they experience as a human being and these constructs of gender and beauty and norms, and they initially view what they're seeing in the field through that lens, but then as those headlamps come off and you get more comfortable and you kind of shed, you know, your regular life, you start to take in what's before you and see things a little more clearly, Nikki. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful way of explaining it. I think we all have perceived notions or, or perceived ideals about, you know, nature or beauty or wildlife in general. Um, and some of that has been almost like spoon fed to us um, through, I mean, incredibly important things, right? Like National Geographic is one of my favorite things. I had a subscription to National Geographic like as a child and continue as an adult. Um, but there's lots of nature videos and there's lots of YouTube videos that show very sort of specific, almost like choreographed images of nature. And I think that's sort of the expectation people have, right? Like, oh, I'm going to go out on this field trip and then within two seconds, I'm going to see all of these amazing things. When in reality, bird watching especially <laughs> is not the most exciting outdoor hobby, right? Like it, you have to be quiet, you have to be still, you have to be patient. Um, all things that challenge our sort of natural movement, right? And our natural busyness. Um, and so I think it, it is really important for people to spend time in nature and challenge our own perceived notions about what stillness looks like and what beauty looks like. Um, and, you know, I think one of my favorite things about birds is um, people have a really hard time understanding the size. Um, and so once you're out in the field and you're looking at, you know, a golden eagle, you're like, okay, wait, I was just kidding. That is a really big bird, <laughs> um, you know? And so 
I think, yeah, I think we're constantly pushing ourselves to learn more and see more. And I think the more time we get to spend in those shared environments and spaces with whatever you're looking at, whether it's birds or mammals or plants, um, it really does change your idea of what beauty is. Cool. Um, okay, this is gonna be a little far out there, but I'm just gonna go for it. I, I think a lot about our species as migrators. And we have yeah. these, and when we think about people migrating across the planet, uh, we try to prevent them sometimes. Like we have borders, for example. And, I, and it, it forces me to think a lot about the way our species wants to migrate and what it teaches me about my identity. But I wonder about bird migration. So like as birds are migrating in the, you know, in the fall to, to winterized grounds or in the spring towards nesting territories, has that ever like had an effect on you, Nikki, about your own identity? Is there, is there a lesson for us to learn about our own identities and the migration of birds? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, are so many lessons. Um, <laughs> there's a, there was a, for a while, a really interesting um, education program that a friend of mine did um, who worked at a, a raptor organization in California. And the goal of the program was to take the concept of migration into classrooms of students who were predominantly immigrant children, right? Whether they were first generation or undocumented or whatever the situation might be. And to talk about migration of birds and about boundaries and about space and what that meant. And what it did is it created a really safe space for those students to talk about their migrations um, in a way that there weren't any like fear of being deported or fear of having their parents get into trouble or anything like that. And then they would take the kids to this small migration site uh, across the ocean from California and, or from San Francisco. And they would um, watch the raptor migration and they would talk about the parallels. And it was one of the most amazing education things that I'd ever heard of. And I kept thinking like, how do we all recreate this? Because I think it's so important to talk about movement and barriers and freedom um, and safety and all of the things that human migrants face, raptor migrants and other animal migrants face as well. Um, as human development increases, we see more and more barriers to like safe migration, winter um, habitat gets lost or stopover habitat gets lost. Some of these birds are migrating to countries who have no legal protection for them, right? So those birds are then vulnerable to being shot or killed and there are no consequences unlike what we have in the US. Um, and so I think about those parallels often, you know, there people want to come to America because they think that it's a safe place to be, right? But when you think about all of the barriers that are in the way um, for people to get here, um, and then the treatment once they do get here, right? It's similar to, to birds of prey. Like there are a lot of barriers for them to get to that safe space. And then once they do, is that space truly safe for them or not? 
Do you ever do the reverse when you're watching in the field over these years and you learned so much about birds of prey? And like you said, the harrier is one of your, your favorites. Do you ever look at, you know, we put so much of us onto nature as we see it, but do you ever look at nature and go, damn, I wish I could do that like she could? Yeah, all the time, right? <laughs> I think, you know, when you watch, uh, I was just at the Grand Canyon uh, two weeks ago for work. We have a migration site there. Um and I'm standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon watching birds migrate overhead. And they're to anthropomorphize. So I, um, there was this one red-tailed hawk that as it was migrating over, it almost looked like it was just playing in the airstream. Like it just was like letting the thermals just kind of take it. And it was just sort of like leisurely gliding. Um, and so I just think like, wow what would that be like the bird's eye view, like to migrate over the Grand Canyon, right? To migrate over the Panama Canal, all of these places as humans that we love to go joke often. We have a there's an island and they nest here and they stay for part of the summer. And then they spend their winters in like the Baja region of California and Northern Mexico. And I think that's the life I want, right? Like I want to spend the spring and summer in Utah and I want to spend the rest of the year in Baja. <laughs> like, who doesn't, who doesn't want that? Right. Or when I think about Swainson's hawks that have this incredibly long migration from, you know, Alaska all the way down to Argentina where they spend the entire winter and just eat grasshoppers and big bugs like all winter long. And I think, you know, it would be nice to just not have to do anything else except eat this like very like available food source and you don't have to work as hard as you know hunting rabbits or squirrels um so yeah I think that all the time and just all the really beautiful places they get to go well what about the pecking order of gender in birds of prey anything interesting that you've observed there um, you know, I think interestingly enough, I mean, there's always a pecking order. Males and bird species are always going to have some level of, I, well, I shouldn't say even really that they have some level of dominance because really at the end of the day, the females pick, right? Females choose who they breed with. Um, I think one of the things that's really nice about raptors is in most raptor species, and there are exceptions always in all things, um, but most raptor species, both the male and the female put effort into raising the young. And so they both will sit on eggs. They'll both provide food to their mate. They'll both provide food to their young, teach them how to fly, all of those things, um, which, you know, isn't uncommon in the, the like wild animal kingdom, but it is kind of uncommon in birds, right? Usually the, it's a sexual strategy, right? Males either have this strategy where they invest the time into their young, hoping that some of them will survive because they've had both parents kind of protecting and teaching them, or, you know, they approach it with the strategy of like a mallard duck where they just breed with as many females as possible. And then they're just going with like kind of the statistics game, <laughs> right? Like eventually some of these birds are going to survive to leave the nest. Um, and so I, I prefer the raptor strategy. I, I feel, you know, it feels a little bit more natural to what I'm accustomed to, you know, with two parents sort of investing time or two people. It doesn't have to be two parents. It could be 
you know, grandparents or whatever, like there's, there's something nice about having help in that because it's not an easy task, right. To raise young and being a baby bird is not easy. About 60% of baby birds don't survive the first year of their life. And so having that extra time with both parents, um, just gives them a little bit extra boost. Nikki, you are, I mean, you're just like a walking encyclopedia for birds. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, I'm really appreciating your, your wealth of knowledge. And I just want to like stay with you for a lot longer and, and hear all the things that you know. So I need to go out to one of your field, one of your guided field um, explorations ah, for sure. But great- as we're, as we're getting closer to the end of our interview, I think our listeners would love to hear from you about if you were designing a class where it was about raptors and gender, mm-hmm. like what's, a, what's an assignment or an activity that would be, you think would be really exciting for students to participate in? Uh, I've thought a lot about this question and it's been one that's a little bit interesting for me because I think there are, are lots of ways that you could approach it, but from like an academic kind of lens, um, I think one of the really useful things in a gender nature class is to really dig into where the shortcomings are, right? We talked already about what it's like to be a woman in science, right? But I'm also like a white woman in science. And so that comes with its own innate sense of privilege. Um, What I think is missing from science and conservation specifically is, you know, where are the people of color and where are the trans people and where are the, um, you know, non-binary folks? Like, I know that they're out there and I know that there's like an interest, but how do we create a space for them? Um, And how do we create a safe space for them? And I think that's something I would really love um, to hear from, you know, people who, are maybe a little bit younger than I am in a college classroom, maybe not always, but there's a good chance that they're younger than I am. Um, Because I feel like, again, I mentioned at the top of our interview, for me, that's, that's the big challenge is making conservation accessible. And so, you know, I get, we get a lot of pushback um, when we hire a new position and that new position doesn't go to, you know, a, a person of color or other kind of, um, you know, diverse or um, accessible group. And it isn't for a lack of trying on our part. I will admit 100% we could try harder, right? There are things we could do better. But I think that there also isn't a lot of space created for that. Um, and I, so I would, I would push students to help think about how to overcome that. And I would push them to you know, I would create an assignment that was built around finding people in conservation that were in those groups, looking for peer-reviewed articles written by people who don't look like me, who aren't white men, um, and think about how we start as a community and as an organization really pushing that needle to a new space. Very cool. Okay. All right, we'll do that. We're going to make the pipeline. Uh, okay, for please students do. Students to I go into wait. conservation. You know, we have this social construct of identity. Um, I don't know that nature has 
definitely does not have the same notion of it. Is there an exercise you think would be valuable for folks in this class to take, like, like you know, that classic T-bar and write down the social construct of humans when it comes to gender and sexuality and race and spirituality, and then go and see what, it, you know, nature's telling them as they observe it, and then see what mm-hmm. we could do to maybe take some of that good stuff from nature and lay it on top to the problems we're having where our identities intersect in human, human construct. Yeah, I think that would be incredibly exciting. I mean, it goes along with some of the things we've already talked about already with like the notion of beauty and what we in ourselves and what we see as beauty. And um, one of the things that we've been doing for probably the last 10 years really targeted at Hawkwatch is taking data into classrooms and having students, you know, talk about the variables that we might collect in our banding um, during migration. And one of the things that we measure is wing fat is very different than fat in humans, at least how we view it, right? It's the same, (laughs) has the same purpose, but we view it very differently. Um, And so the assignment is always to pick two variables and see if there's any relationship between the variables. And there is always a significant group of students, especially when young women are working together um, to try to look at wing fat and sex, right? Is there a relationship between, you know, in their mind, women are, are fatter than men, right? That's, that's the challenge. And that's the kind of the, the barrier, right? One of the things we talk about a lot in, in humans is this ideal physicality of what a a feminine body should look like. Right. And so I, I think what happens more often than not is again, we're projecting our own ideals onto nature and what we find pretty quickly is they don't exist in the same way. And I think that's a really, really powerful thing to talk about, especially with younger people, maybe with older people is a bit more important. (laughs) That's so cool. That's such Nikki, I, what a what a gift you are! I'm I'm so excited to hear your thoughts. And Laura, I loved how even as you were talking about that assignment and thinking about the ways in which students can write down a list of their social constructs and then doing observations and then connecting it back. How Nikki did this to talk about how students are already projecting um, in looking at two different variables for for a bird, and then going back and wondering how is it actually affecting you as a scientist as a as a human observer and the ways in which we continue to project values onto science overall. overall. So putting your two minds together, that's, (laughs) that's really nice and lovely for this class. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I think I want to say one other thing, and then I know we're running out of time. Um, I think one of the other really valuable things to talk about in, in a science and gender class or nature and gender class is the difference between sex and gender. It's something that I fight with. I don't have to go in classrooms as often as I used to. Um, But when I did, it was something that I was always arguing with students about. And what I found is I was often also arguing with teachers because they wouldn't want, if the students decided to use sex as a variable, um, they would want them to put gender instead of sex. And I would always say, but you can't do that. They're very different things. And I think 
that's exactly what you're talking about in this class, right? Is the is gender and nature and ac- access and equity. Um, and I think once we get over that hurdle of being able to say the word sex without everyone turning bright red um, in whatever form it is <laughs> um, and really start to explore the difference between sex and gender, um, I think we're going to actually hopefully start to make progress into having people feel equal and included. And I think that's really important. Well said, and you're, you are right. It's littered across all of our different institutions as people's um, mixing up or blending of the two words and uh, helping them clarify that sex has a lot to do with our plumbing and gender has everything to do with our social constructs, helps them become better scientists and better practitioners. Absolutely. One of my mentors and longtime friend is uh, Dr. David Derizotis, who's a guest on the same program often. Um, and he, he says, we treat nature how we treat ourselves. And I wonder what you think about that statement, Nikki. Um, oh, I would like to think that it's true. <laughs> it's a little harder for me. Um, I think, well, for me personally, I feel like I'm much kinder to nature than I probably am to myself. Um, I feel like nature is a very safe space for me um, in a lot of ways when I think about like my own, you know, connection to the world and spirituality. But there's also a part of me that thinks in a broader, you know, um, like human experience, I think if we treated nature with the same level of self-importance that we treat ourselves, we wouldn't be facing the climate crisis that we're facing right now. Or at least we would be able to believe that there is actually a climate crisis, right? Like we put so much pressure on nature and we expect nature to give us everything in return when we don't do the same back. It's not an equal relationship, I guess is what I'm saying. Thank you. Well, Nikki, you've got the event coming up, but also if folks want to go on a day trip or go sit in the dark and learn to turn off their headlamps and be comfortable watching for owls, what's the website where they can get all the details? It is hawkwatch.org. Nikki Wayment of Hawkwatch International and Professor Kilo Zamora, a gender scholar at the University of Utah. Check tonight's show notes for links to help Kilo create his gender and nature class for 2022. Why KRCL? Because our mission is to keep the community connected. 75,000 weekly listeners would agree. Introduce your business to this local, loyal audience with a tax-deductible challenge grant during Radiothon. On-air messaging, social media, and more. Email B at krcl.org. Thanks to George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation for investing in KRCL and communities throughout Utah. Russian by birth but American by music, Svetlana is still on the way. She's going to stop in Orem November 3rd. First, Disney on Ice will be back in Salt Lake November 4th through 7th at the Vivint Arena, which means my next guest returns home, and she's got a song to add to our playlist tonight. Let's pass that microphone and find out what she's been up to since she went to Brighton High and Cottonwood Heights. Allison Murgis. How you doing, Allison? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Not bad at all. I'm excited to hear what's on your workout playlist as a skater for Disney on Ice. But you grew up and went to Brighton High, I understand? Yeah, I went to Brighton High School when I lived in Utah. 
So how long have you been skating? I've been skating since I was seven. Wow. <laughs> we're talking yeah. we're talking early mornings at the rink and everything, right? Oh, everything. Yep. What sparked your interest in getting on the ice? Um, I used to be a skier and I'd ski at the local mountains in Utah, but I thought it was too cold. So I chose to figure skate instead. Kind of <laughs> I love it. So where has this job and do you think of it as a job taken you? Oh, I definitely think of it as a job, but it's also a ton of fun. And it's taken me all over the world, like almost every continent. And yeah, it's been a blast. So you're coming back home to Salt Lake. Is there a favorite haunt or food that you're looking forward to? Oh, my gosh. Salt Lake has so many great options. Um, I really like Vietnamese food, like, oh, my, always good. I'm always curious, though, about what a professional athlete puts in their body. You got to fuel it a little more um, intentionally. So what's on your your diet list? And then we're going to get to your playlist. Um, I eat a pretty paleolithic diet. So meat and vegetables and fruit and lots of nuts. So I try and stay pretty natural. But there's some days where I just want to enjoy a city and eat whatever the local bakery has to offer. <laughs> okay, Banbury Cross, are you hankering for one of those coming back to Salt Lake, a little bit of donut action? <laughs> yes, of course. All right, so what roles do you skate in Disney on Ice coming up here November 4th through 7th? Yeah, I play Cinderella in the show, and I have a lovely Prince Charming, and it's such a blast to skate with him. What's the trickiest move you do as Cinderella on Ice? Ooh, um, we do this overhead spin where he holds me um in a like tabletop position over his head while he's spinning oh, you're talking nobody puts baby in a corner move oh dirty dancing sure. right okay yes, i was i was for a second there i thought maybe my references were a little bit too, too old no. for you so allison no. for young skaters listening thinking you know maybe one day i could skate disney on ice what's your advice oh i say you definitely can do it and to just keep working at whatever goals you have, and you can end up right where I am and wherever else you'd want to be. So let's get to your playlist, because we want to hear some of the things that you work out to, and we'll play something off of it. What's some of the music you're listening to these days? My favorite band, Arcade Fire, has a song called Creature Comfort. I also like 1612 by Wolfpack and Brown Eyed Lover by Alan Stone. From Allison's playlist, folks, it's Wolf Peck featuring Antoine Stanley on vocals. This is 1612 on KRCL. Hi, I'm Kara Jean. I appreciate the relationships that KRCL DJs have with other cultural organizations and nonprofits throughout Utah. My heart has been filled with joy to be back at concerts and local festivals, connecting with all the amazing folks in our community. Your support means that KRCL will continue to be a people-powered megaphone at the heart of this place we call home. Show some love for the people and all the people things we do here with a contribution at krcl.org. This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now!, followed by Emily's Playlist at 8 o'clock. Forgash and Cody D checking in at 10.30 for Maximum Distortion. Two hours of punk and ska with Liz at 3 a.m. when you get your rude awakening. And then John Florence starting off your brand new day at 6 a.m. My last guest tonight was raised in Russia, fell in love with New York City, and will be at the Orem Public Library November 3rd. Stay tuned for details on this show that doesn't cost you a dime. Let's pass that microphone. Hello, my name is Svetlana, 
I'm a jazz vocalist and composer and band leader, and I'm coming to Utah my first time ever in Utah uh, with my band, The New York Collective, to play at the Orium Public Library on the evening of November 3rd. So excited to have you coming to the Beehive State from the Big Apple, <laughs> Svetlana. Oh, and... the beehive and the apple, they <laughs> kind of go together. So I'm excited too. I agree. I was reading up on your story and is the New York Collective it's a subtle nod to your origins in Soviet Russia? Oh, because of the word collective? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Lara. It's because this weight of being jazz musician is so heavy, you can only lift it together in this <laughs> capitalist system. I love it. Great return there. Um, so, But you grew up in Soviet Russia as a young girl. Tell me, tell me about life as a kid in Soviet Russia. What era are we this talking? This interview is seven hours, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> okay. It was happy childhood. You know, it mainly centered on your family. You know, my family was lovely and wonderful and you know, we did things that were within our reach, which was not much. You know, you couldn't really leave to go anywhere uh, unless you were like a party official, communist party official. Uh, we were just, you know, they were all engineers and you were expected to then be an engineer. Like whichever hive you were born into, more or less, is what your life was going to be. Um, so I, um, I guess growing up, there was not a lot of access to Western culture, and it was also looked at as inferior, of course, because it was a culture and a regime of oppression, which is ironic, of course, because as we know now, <laughs> not <Yes>. so quick <laughs> was the first thing from where. Um, but there was a lot of propaganda, you know, and especially when I was growing up. Uh, like late 70s, uh, early 80s, just before the whole thing finally just imploded. There was a lot of really heavy duty. It was known as a period of stagnation. Just everything stopped. They just couldn't pull this anymore. Um, so they really came down stronger on, you know, things that were non-Soviet, but at the same time, by that time, everybody knew. And there was just a lot of joking around about the regime. But um, there were these little kind of splashes of culture. So my parents, like a lot of parents of kids in my sort of hive, you know, had collections of vinyl music or there were something interesting for you to know. Uh, there was this thing that was called Music on Their Ribs. On the what ribs? Do you think that is. What is yes. it? Like ribs. Like playing the music of your ribs? No, no, not at all. It was illegally copied vinyl records on the big x ray sheets. No way. That's why it was called music on the ribs, because it was often chest x rays. And this people had illegal factories in their apartments, basically, to go ahead and make those copies. And you could play this vinyl maybe 50 times before it completely wore off. And that's how people shared music. No, wait, so x-rays turned into records. Yes, exactly. That if you Google it, you can still get some of those and they're enthusiasts. But, you know, I fell in love with jazz. It was just so different, you know? Mm -hmm. First of all, the whole, the melodies and the voices, you know, Ella was my introduction and she could just sing anything high or low and it was as beautiful and you know I was a student of music and student of voice 
early on. And just, I think the tone is what I fell in love with. And then just how the music went around certain notes and, you know, chromatic passages, which was not so typical for, you know, Eastern European music and the Soviet pop music that I heard and the syncopation and, you know, the improvisation, it was just beautiful. And I loved it so much. Um, so, you know, a lot of pieces of joy in this overall pretty glum <laughs> situation. You also found an underground movie house with Western right. films. Tell us about, was it called The Illusionist? I know, right? It, that's the whole beautiful part of it. It was not quite underground. It was actually one of those paradoxes of Soviet regime. So my grandmother, because uh, some of our family served in the military, they were given and were like heroes of the Second World War, which, you know, you just like threw your body on the, on the bomb and you got, you know, all the, all the kinds of rewards after that. Um, they got an apartment in a quite privileged building. The buildings themselves were uh, four or five buildings in the center of Moscow. Ameri uh, Russian architects went to the U.S. and stole the designs uh, the ideas of like Empire State Building and things like that in the 30s. And then they came back and they built three or four of those buildings, the famous sisters of Moscow. You can put it in Wikipedia and learn more about it. One of them is Moscow University and on, one of them is a famous hotel, Ukraine, and another couple were residential. So she got this privileged sort of access to this really small one bedroom apartment in this building. But it was all very different from how I grew up. I grew up on the outskirts of Moscow in really ugly concrete buildings. This one had mosaics and beautiful paintings and special food stores. They were sort of like to show the foreigners, you know, this is how Soviet people lived, should you desire to visit. And it allowed for certain little snippets of freedoms that the rest of us never saw. So for example, there was this movie theater Everything had to be sanctioned. It was not underground. If you did something like this in secret, you were sent to a psych ward or to prison. So it was sanctioned sort of like enthusiasts of movies sort of uh, club. And it was a small movie theater, like I'm sure you, you know, I have in my little town I live now, maybe, I don't know, 50 seats, 100 seats. And they had the retrospectives or those programs that are specific, Italian cinema, French cinema. And I've spent quite a lot of time staying with my grandma in that building. And we would sign up, you bought a subscription and you could see one or two movies a day. And that's really, frankly, blew my mind of an impressionable Soviet little child who was just, uh, wait a minute, like women can wear open dresses and eat giant fruit and the movie can be just about love without any hints of propaganda. And of course, music was part of it. So uh, it was very interesting that it was called The Illusionist because that's how I felt. I felt like a little bunny in the hat of The Illusionist being brought to some other place, you know. Now, I understand that the movies of your youth also inspired the album you put out in 2019 and then COVID yeah. hit, I'm guessing no touring in 2020. So you coming to Utah now is picking up that thread again of playing yeah. live music. For sure. I mean, we were lucky to have done things 
here and there. Uh, but generally, yes, we started the touring. We did a sold out release in Joe's Pub in New York, which is a lovely nonprofit venue, really beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, and we have started a little tour like the Blue Note, Blue's Alley, started hitting, you know, Regatta Bar in Boston, really nicely attended, beautiful shows. And then we went to Florida and on the plane back, people were already wearing masks. It was March. And then I remember the venue for the show on March 12th called me and said, this is it. We're done. We're closing up. So it is silly, but it's de facto continuation of the tour um, to release this record. And um, while I'm already working on something else, but it is music from movies from the entire century, from 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, to 90s and even 2000s. And uh, a lot of those songs are about dreaming and going after something. And I kind of realized that after I picked out the songs, and I think it is interesting that my subconsciousness almost connected me to that idea of what movies were for me, uh, was about dreaming and escaping into some other world, physically really than going after, you know, that world in moving continents, but also in my head and imagining things. So. You would hear songs such as Moonlight from Sabrina, which we know is all about this girl who was dreaming to escape her circumstance and, and reinvent herself. Pure imagination, you know, literally the song about imagining and uh, doing something else and taking folks to the world of your creation here as an artist, but some other context there. Over the Rainbow, we know the song has a meaning uh, kind of a secret meaning the person who wrote the lyrics had, was of Russian Jewish origin. He was talking about, you know, one interpretation about his people ex, uh, escaping suffering and then escaping the Holocaust, you know, over the rainbow, over the chimney tops, you know, and every song has this little hidden meaning to it, but also it's just so beautiful. So that's the record. And that is Svetlana. She and the New York Collective will be at the Orem Public Library November 3rd. Check tonight's show notes for a link to her show, which is open to the public, no ticket necessary. You know, she and I got to talking quite a bit. I didn't have room for the entire conversation, so I will put an extended play version in tonight's show notes for you. I'll leave you with a bit of Svetlana's version of Over the Rainbow after that story she told about its origins. How could I not share it? I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening to Radioactive on KRCL. Have a great night. When all the world is a hopeless jumble